let's get into it. Uh, you'll see that like my outlines are way different than uh, Greg's. I try to put words on a page that are like some idea of a thought that I had <laughs> in my study and uh, maybe some verses that go along with it and uh, hopefully this takes more than 10 minutes to go through but less than two hours. <laughs> you never know. Uh, so I don't want to do a whole lot of back study on like how important the kingdom of God is or why it's a major theme. Um, let's just, I listed some scriptures up there, uh, which I'll just kind of recite from memory. Uh, so Matthew 3, 2 is John the Baptist preaching, repent, uh, for behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus says the same thing in the beginning of his ministry in Matthew three, seventeen, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the onset of John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry, both were preaching that the kingdom of God is here, it's coming, it's close. Uh, but they didn't explain it. They didn't say, but like, let me give you like a 10-part series on how it's going to come and uh, 12 points on how it's going to be made visible. Right? Like, they might have explained it a little bit. We don't know because obviously, you know, throughout Matthew and the Gospels, every single word wasn't recorded. Um, you know, like if you look in Acts 17, that's Paul speaking at the Areopagus, uh, Areopagus, whatever. Like, and that takes me about like 30 seconds to read. I guarantee you Paul wasn't there for 30 seconds explaining to a culture that had no idea who Jesus was <laughs> about that, right? So it's probably a summation or a recapitulation of what he said. Um, so maybe they went into it more, but... Uh, Clearly, that's not what God, through the Holy Spirit and the authors of you know, Matthew, uh, give us. So we're kind of expected to know what the kingdom of God is, like right off the bat, especially the Israelites and the Hebrews, um, Matthew being a Levite uh, to, the, to the Hebrews, right? Writing to the Hebrews. So, uh, but let's read a couple of these just to make the point a little bit more clear. I guess let's go to the left. And then, Kyle, can you read Acts 1, 3, and then Austin, Acts 28, 30 to 31. And then let's skip that Daniel one. And then, Jonathan, can you read Matthew 21, 43? And we'll just leave it at that. And speaking about the kingdom of God. Yeah, so this is right before Jesus ascends, right before he says, you'll receive power from on high and be my witnesses and be baptized in the spirit. Uh, for 40 days, he taught about the kingdom of God. Cool. Probably a main point of Jesus. <laughs> All right, Acts 28. Acts 28, 30-31. Yeah, so who knows? Who's this talking about? Last two chapters, or last two verses, I mean, in Acts. Paul. Paul, right? So where was he teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ? In Rome. In Rome? Yeah. Under house arrest, right? In prison, uh, essentially, right? So, um, and then Matthew twenty-one forty-three. Yeah. So that's Jesus talking uh, on one of the mounts. Can't remember which one off the top of my head. Uh, making a declaration against the people of Israel 
against the Israelites, saying, I'm going to take the kingdom of God away from you and give it to whoever's producing the fruits, a people, people group producing the fruits, right, of whatever that is, the kingdom of God. So, um, you know, so let's look at the, I want to do this real quick uh, before we move on. So uh, I did this with the opponent students, and it seemed to be highly valuable for them. Let's see if it's of any value for you guys. So uh, this is participation. You guys, this is for you guys to answer. Um, so John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, all talk about the kingdom of God. Um, there's most of Jesus's parables are about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, right? All of the parables, uh, except for I think one or two, between Luke 10 and 18 are all about the kingdom, except for maybe two or something. Um, so he uses that word for a reason, right? So if anyone's taking notes, this is probably like, if you get anything out of this, words mean things. <laughs> right? Wow, that was super deep. Like he didn't say uh, any other word besides word. Uh, he didn't use the building, the synagogue, the temple. He didn't use anything else besides kingdom, right? Thank you, Daniel. In case we forget. Because uh, we do have um, this, uh, it just happens to everybody, not just in our culture or the time, whatever, this happens to everybody. Uh, there we read something, we've read it 100 times, we've read it 10 times, we've read it once, and we passively read it because we're trying to just go through it and maybe we're trying to meet our goal of reading three chapters a day or whatever. So we just passively read it, and we never really do what the Bible says and think and meditate on it and go deeper and try to understand why God chose those exact words and those exact parables and those exact people and everything. Uh, we could do that with like one chapter of the Bible for like six years meeting every day for like three hours a day of just reading it, thinking about it, reading it again, looking at it from a different perspective, thinking about the words, why did they choose, why did the writers, why did the Holy Spirit choose these words, and what do they mean, and what comes to mind. So, um, when we think of kingdom, what are the implications? What is a kingdom? What is involved in a kingdom? So Daniel, just write like somewhere off to the right. Don't write under kingdom because we're going to use something else under there. Uh, yeah, somewhere like over there. Just like what's involved in a kingdom? A king. A king. Whoa. <laughs> that should be the first one that we realize, right? At least one of them. What else? There's a people to be ruled. There has to. If there's a king, there has to be people, right? Well, it's people. You can just shout them out. Authority. So draw that out a little bit. What kind of, uh, what do you mean by authority? Because there's a couple different things we can maybe get from that. So, uh, more so authority and rule and like laws and that kind of authority. And what? And a governing body, right? So there's uh, delegated authority to carry out the king's laws. Right, so those are two separate things. There's law, and there's delegated authorities, 
right? Like a senate or something. Yeah, like, like police, right? What else? What else is in a kingdom or a society? Civil, that's kind of the delegated authority. Civil structure, right? Laws, what else? Within having laws, there are sanctions for not keeping the laws. So there's repercussions for that, yeah. What else is in any society, any governments, any kingdom? There's a means for it to go on. Like, there's some type of reproduction. Like, you know, if the kingdom wants to go on, they have to have their citizens reproducing having more citizens and like the king obviously has to be key producing as well so his life can go on too and continue rolling yeah it's part of every nation and society that they're trying to expand their borders like jobs, right like, like that too. what's that jobs or uh yeah jobs businesses uh an economy right ways for people to work and make money and spend it what is it defense institutes seven, seven. Yeah, uh, well, we'll get into that, but um, we will get into that here in a second, which is on the paper. But uh, so, what else? It has to be somewhere. Has to be somewhere, right? Okay, land. Is there anything else people can think of of what would uh, what is involved in every society? What uh, in a kingdom? When you when we say kingdom, what do we think of, or what is the? There's classes. Classes. Yeah. Like levels of uh, people groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are also other kingdoms outside of that. Well, we're talking that we're just saying within every kingdom, there's you know things. So that's pretty good. Uh, so how do we define the kingdom of God? It's the king reigning over the people with his laws, you know, when they're carried out. It's a rough way to describe it. Yeah. Anybody else want to give it a shot? I'll just use from God's big picture. I think it's like God's people and God under God's reign and God's place under his blessing. Yeah. It's like a rough so uh, clearly throughout scripture, we see this in Acts particularly, um, that the kingdom of God, although Israel thought it was going to be uh, in a geopolitical place, in actual Israel, there's actually going to be a king, a Christ, an anointed one, a Messiah on the throne, but that's not the case, right? Or else uh, the book of Acts is stupid. <laughs> Of like, why are you going everywhere? <laughs> or Jesus would have never said you would have been my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right? He would have said you would have been uh, my people in Israel, and please don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> right? So clearly the kingdom is going, and this is, we'll see how this draws out, you know, through scripture throughout this study, um, that the kingdom is going to cover the entire earth, that the kingdom of God is going to go to the four corners and be exported. It's part of the whole uh, main themes of Luke and Acts. Um, so, like, when we think of, when we say the kingdom of God, we have to think actively and say it involves a king. There has to be a people. There's laws. There's a way it expands. There's an economy. Uh, there's classes of people. There's delegated authority. Um, there's institutions like that. 
So um, kind of skipping around on our outline a little bit, uh, right under Kingdom, the seven, start at the uh, bottom. You can keep that up there. And just write the seven inevitable institutions of every society, starting with self-government at the bottom, and work its way up. And uh, we're just going to see how, like, if you look at it through this perspective of uh, God using the word kingdom for a reason, because we physically see kingdoms. Those are visible and manifest everywhere on the earth where two or three people are gathered, uh, essentially. That if you start thinking of the kingdom of God in terms of these institutions, you'll see very easily that the kingdom of God has to be made manifest. It has to be visible. It has to work itself out, uh, I would say, in reality, in the material world somehow. Right? It's not just pietism. It's not just some theoretical abstract of what God's going to do in your heart and mind, and it's never going to come to the earth. Right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So um, what's the study? So we're going to talk about how the, the very first thing is like, if you were to say, like, where do, Christ, where do you go to find Christians? Everywhere? Church. Church, right? That's not the first. The first thing is like you would go, you ask anybody, they would say church. You could find them everywhere uh, if they're there. <laughs> I thought they just pop out of the ground like mushrooms. Ah, some of them do, but those are the weird ones. Uh <laughs> Whatever that means. But so, like, you know, if you were to ask, uh, take a poll, I'm pretty sure like 99.9% of the people would say, like, where do, where do, where do you find a Christian? Uh, most people would like go to a church. If you're going to target Christians in any way, uh, you'd probably go to a church. If you were new to a city uh, and you wanted to fellowship with Christians, you'd probably check out local churches, right? Uh, you may, you know, uh, go to your boss and be like, hey, are you a Christian? No? Okay, never mind. Uh, <laughs> and be weird about it, but... So, what's the study of the church called? A little louder. Ecclesiology. ecclesiology, right? So where does that come from? Ecclesia, the word ecclesia. Uh, so if you look at the outline... Um, uh, ecclesia means the called out assembly. So uh, you cannot be an assembly of one. It is impossible. <laughs> right? There's a huge, uh, like, one of the easiest things or one of the predominant ideas out there is what's called the unchurched church. So there's people out there that really believe that they're Christians, really believe, they might have like a sincere love for God. Uh, they might be as like Acts, or I'm sorry, Romans 10, 4 says they have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. Um, but by negation, you can't be the called out assembly in your house by yourself. You cannot be the church unless you assemble, because that's what the word means, right? So I put on there uh, that the unchurched church somewhere uh, is a misnomer, is a misnaming. What about the online church? Online church. Uh, I don't think that's uh, what the writer of Hebrews said when he says, don't forsake the meeting together or the assembling together. 
I don't think anybody in the early church when the Holy Spirit decided to write the scriptures had in mind that we'd be meeting online. <laughs> uh, so, I guess let's go with that kind of being said. Um, let's go back to the what makes the kingdom of God visible in our lives out or, or article. Um, and since uh, we already read some scriptures, Teresa, why don't you read that first one, the kingdom of God is made visible in the church. Okay. Just read that little paragraph. Can you see the church? The kingdom is made real, is fleshed out in the church. The church is the visible proof that the king reigns. Our allegiance to Christ as our king is as strong or as weak as our commitment to his body, the church, of which we are a part. The fact that he has all authority is revealed among those who together acknowledge him to be their head, their Lord, and their king. So it's really hard to talk about the church without talking about community, his government, membership commitment, and how the church fleshes out how they meet together. But we're going to really try... Uh, to limit it to just the institutional church. Like the meeting togethers, uh, all of that involves community, all that involves is government, uh, and although that involves membership commitment, right? You can't like actually assemble together on a regular basis without some level of commitment. <laughs> so that has to be involved. Um, that's why I think, you know, how, how you put, you know, just the church. Uh, as the first one, I think that just makes a lot of sense because all these things are subject under that. So, uh, let's have um, Jane, you read Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And Anvesh, can you read that? 1 John 3, 14 to 18. Yeah, so Anvesh, to answer your question, I think it's very hard to uh, meet together online and to uh, encourage one another and spur one another on love online. <laughs> it's Because uh, I think, you know, one of the things I want to do um, and what I uh, really like to help people with is, like, what we're doing now is, like, active reading. Like, what exactly do these words mean why are they used, and what's the implications, and how do we use that in our life, right? So that's like actually like I do know people who uh, forsake uh, going to church to meet together as a body of Christians regularly, uh, and they do it, uh, you know, but they'll stay home and say like, oh, well, we had like, you know, we had family church today or something, uh, but it's because they woke up late or something, and like, it's not like because it was like super bad outside and it was snowing, which is like a legitimate, you know, I think a legitimate thing to kind of stay home and not take your family out when it's like a blizzard uh, and put them in harm's way. Although maybe the early, uh, early American church and the Puritans thought differently, but. <laughs> they didn't have to drive. They didn't have to drive. You're right. They just had to take the horse and buggy <laughs> or just the horse. Or just one. <laughs> right? All right, so Anvesh, read that First uh, John 3, 14 to 18. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Love is worth our time, but indeed and truth. Yeah. So why did I pick this scripture to go along with, like, a meeting together and, you know, the kingdom of God manifesting and meeting together? 
So how does this like play out in you know real life? How can we use this scripture? Or how am I using this scripture uh, to show that we have to be together? We have to meet. We have to assemble. We can't do this alone. Right. That's one, right? Like almost every example. You can't like say you love your brother or your sister in Christ uh, from a distance. Like in this example, right? What is a, I think it's verse, uh, like right in the middle, like 14 or 15 or something. Talks about, uh, you know, before it says don't just do it in word or deed, but like, um, I'm drawing a blank. Let me look at it. Little children, let oh. us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed. Yeah. Well, how are we are? How are we out to lay down our lives for our brothers if we don't ever see them? How could I lay down my life for Josiah if I never see him? If I never meet with him, if I don't know that much about him, if I don't like regularly talk to him, if I don't regularly assemble, can anybody think of anything of how I can lay down my life for him? Nobody, because it's not really possible. You might be able to say like in some theoretical way, like I did something and never met him. You could donate to his GoFundMe. Yeah, you could donate. I could, I could work my tail off and make a lot of money and give it to him and lay down all I have to him. But I uh, don't think that's uh, what John had in mind as a GoFundMe account or just giving monetarily. Right? Even when he says, uh, you know, let's not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth, uh, like a deed, like you have to do something. Like... I mean, it's one thing to say if you're like, you know, give your possessions and help them out, but a deed is like something you do for somebody. Something like, I would have to know that Josiah uh, needed mittens, and then I knit him some mittens or something, you know? It's kind of a silly example, but like you have to know something about the person, and that would negate that like you probably, you know, know him and met with him and like live in some kind of fellowship, right? So, um, you know, uh, I think most, if not everybody here, is like a committed member of the church or a church. Uh, so why is this like, so why the heck are we even talking about it? Um, one thing is to raise a vision of the church, because uh, I put in there somewhere that modern-day Western evangelicals uh, have an extremely low view of the church, a lot of individualism, non-commitment, use it more as a social club, non-participation, pietism, low expectations, etc. Uh, and I think that really plays out in the fact that, you know, uh, at least, you know, this is my personal kind of testimony, is like I haven't been able to find a book in the 1900s, in the uh, 20th century uh, or beyond that is any good talking about the church. I, haven't, I also haven't read every book on the church written in the last 118 years. But uh, as far as like, you know, we have found some books 
that hit some topics pretty good, but when you read through Acts, the Gospels, and take those implications of what the church is and apply them to the epistles, then uh, like our view is like down here, and like the Bible's view is like 35 feet like above this roof uh, in real ways, right? Like I've just been, I made it a goal, personal goal, um, just to, I felt like the Lord would give me some sort of zeal or uh, charisma to like be a more zealous person, <laughs> just in general and more passionate. Uh, if I would read or listen to the book of Acts um, every day, or at least five out of seven days throughout the month of January. Uh, I've only listened to it on audiobook about uh, like eight or nine times. Um, and like so many things are like opening up to me about like how the early church acted and worked and operated. And we're like the American church, like us as a church and as a Christian group are like down here and like God's goals of like what he wants to do in the church are like, like way, way higher than we even imagine. So even if you're part of a covenant church and you're a regular member and you regularly assemble, I hope at the very least this lifts, lifts your vision of the church and what the church is supposed to do and what the church is and uh, really that the church uh, as the institution is the primary agent by which the kingdom of God is being advanced and exported through individual Christians working out in these seven institutions. Um, and using this as a tool to be able to talk to those people, you know, I don't, like really quick, let's just do a survey. How many people know somebody who calls themselves a Christian and for whatever reason uh, doesn't regularly attend a church or isn't, doesn't feel like that's even that important that they could be a Christian um, apart from a body, a building, an institution, or who has ever, like, I've been that person. <laughs> uh, I've been that person, and I know those people. Uh, so that's everybody, right? Just about, maybe one person that raised their hand or something. But um, So everybody knows somebody like that. So if you understand what the Bible's saying about that paradigm or that idea, you can hopefully, through Scripture and... Uh, you know, grace and truth, speak to that person if God's calling you to, to walk them into a more uh, biblical, real Christianity. Because if you're not part of a local church or if you're not part of a church, you're, uh, it's like one of that's the fundamental things to tell if like, you know, maybe like you're a real Christian or not. <laughs> like, and that's not my opinion, that's uh, God's word. Right? Because he uses the word ecclesia, uh, for a reason. Um, so I put on there, uh, I didn't number any of this, uh, about like a third of the way down. The church is supposed to be a kingdom within, a, within the kingdoms, a nation within the nations that will assimilate the surrounding kingdoms and nations to the kingdom of Christ. So what do I mean by that? What does that mean? Being an influencer, the kingdom being an influencer over the other kingdoms. Right. So let's look at, it like, you know, obviously some... So a place is what we talked about in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, that's the only one that's, like, a little bit different is, is in the fact that the kingdom of God 
isn't going to be a geopolitical place. It's going to be every place, <laughs> right? It's going to eventually export onto all the earth in every land, but you're not going to be able to like, see the flag for the kingdom and say, you're not going to go be able to shake the king's hand and, and read his tweets, right? <laughs> so uh, it is going to be everywhere. It's going to... Um, it's going to be a kingdom within the kingdom, a nation within the nations, um, and assimilate the surrounding kingdoms and nations to the kingdom of Christ. Who wants to explain that? Or do we want to read the Bible verses first and then explain it? Let's do that. Let's read the Bible verses. Okay, where do we leave off? Jonathan Maddox, uh, Revelation nineteen fifteen, Sydney, Daniel 7... 26 and 27. Read Daniel 7:14 as well, and then 26 to 27. Uh, then John Bradbury, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. I think it's Daniel 14, 7, 14. I didn't write that one down. That would probably be important. Yeah, Daniel 7:14 for you, Sydney, and that one on the page. Um, either that's not the one I was thinking about, or or we just didn't get the right one. Hold on there. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. That's not the right verse. I didn't write that one down. Um, I'll figure it out. Uh, so you go ahead to those Daniel passages. That's a pretty powerful passage that uh, if you read the whole chapter of Daniel 7 in context, that says that the uh, ancient of days, God the Father, uh, gives a kingdom over to the, uh, the Holy One, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ. He is unable to unlock the scroll, and he's given a kingdom and a dominion. And then later in the verses 26 and 27, it says that he gives that kingdom to his saints, who is... Christians, right? Yeah. Uh, the people of God to his saints, uh, and they will take his kingdom and make the kingdoms of his world, of the world, the kingdoms of God, and all kingdoms and all dominions will serve him, or some translations say them. It's either him or them. Uh, either way, it's the same. They're either going to directly serve Christ or they're going to directly serve the people who serve Christ. <laughs> so either translation... Uh, makes sense. Uh, so that's a pretty high calling for the church, if you ask me. Uh, Jonathan, uh, Revelation eleven fifteen. Sorry, I had it wrong on there. Uh, if you can go to Revelation eleven fifteen. Yeah, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That's pretty cool. All right, Isaiah 2. Yep. Okay. The world. 
Yeah. So if we think about this passage or these passages in terms of the seven institutions of everything we listed on the right directly correlates to just how we've organized it on the left in the seven institutions, that there's a people, that's self, uh, there's an economy, that's business and economy, um, uh, you know, delegated authority uh, in the church and family, um, law and civic government, and I mean, there's, there's laws in family, church, education, business, social media, and put a social mores also with social media, or it should just be media and social mores. Not just not just social media. <laughs> yeah, um, and civic government. So, if we think about what Isaiah and uh, Daniel and Revelation are saying, um, and you can this is just uh, these are very short blurps on large tenets throughout Scripture. Matthew twenty-eight. Uh, you could read this in context of the whole book of Acts of what's going on um, and uh, several other places. If you look that uh, the kingdoms of this world, the mountain of the house of Israel built, will be raised among, raised up higher than all the other mountains and all the nations will stream to Jerusalem or Zion uh, because from out of Zion go the law or the teaching. So, the basic idea is that uh, nations, people groups will start seeking the church uh, because of their teaching, of their way of life, because you look at their families, their education, how they handle money, uh, their moral foundation and how they relate to civil government, they're going to inevitably say uh, that you guys hold the truth, your guys' lives are turning out uh, you can visibly see that these people's lives, that the church, the institution, is producing, from the world's view, better people than themselves. Right? Does that make sense mm -hmm. to everybody? There's, uh, and I get that, like, because they say, because Isaiah says that the other mountains uh, will stream because of their teaching. I don't think... Uh, looking at the whole tenet of scripture, that he's talking about some like, you know, nebulous ideas of just like teachings and pietism and uh, faith and uh, things like that. All right? Let's look look at uh, like business and economy. Uh, God has very specific ways on how you should handle your money, what you should do with it, how to steward it, uh, and how to utilize it. Right, and you can you could do a whole study on that for years. Um, that's one of the reasons why Jewish people are so good with money is because they know the truth and reality of the teachings in you know throughout the Old Testament on money, and they utilize it. And anybody could actually utilize that. You don't have to be Jewish or a Christian, <laughs> right, uh, to save your money, to not spend it on frivolous things. Although, if you have the Spirit of God, it's a lot easier. Right? So, uh, the institutional church, as I'm uh, posing, is that we'll export all the teachings and ideas. You know, that does come through individuals, that does come through like 
you know, someone at your work comes to you and says like, hey, like, you know, you seem to, like you, your family isn't like falling apart and everything, and that does happen, right? People, like you interact with people in the world all the time and they're gonna see you and they're gonna say like, how do you keep it together? How do you not get pissed off at work all the time? And uh, how do you not punch walls and stuff <laughs> when you're angry, <laughs> right? People are gonna do that uh, regardless. Um, you know, but I think the institutional church is going to be known as we restore biblical patterns and teachings and doctrines and theologies throughout, that are prevalent throughout scripture that are more biblically accurate, sound, truthful, and real, that the institutional church will grow even more in uh, influence in the culture, right? Because uh, we always say that, like, it's one thing if, like, you know, Sam Chin Poon uh, holds together a job and is a good worker, but if you have, like, you know, 50, 100 people who meet together regularly that all hold down good jobs, have good families, uh, have savings, and, you know, generally live a better quality of life in those areas, it's a lot harder to ignore, right? It's not, you know, I don't think uh, even looking at the, you know, Isaiah passage and um, the Daniel passage, that it means that the world is going to stream to individual believers and Christians, and that's how the kingdom of God is going to be expanded. I think that makes much more sense in the institutional church. But it's going to happen through individuals because they're in the institutional church anyways, right? Mm -hmm. So this does beg like a huge question uh, that I had to try to figure out, which... Uh, if I could just state this, like that part of the outline took me about five minutes to put together. The rest of the outline I had to study for like several hours to try to figure out what scripture says and what's the truth behind it. Um, because like when you think about it, like does Jesus, like if you read the Gospels, uh, Jesus uses the word uh, ecclesia church twice. One in Matthew 16, 18, that when he says, you know, on the truth and revelation of Jesus is the Christ, that he will establish his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's one. Um, and Matthew eighteen seventeen, when he says, if you have a lawsuit or someone sins against you, uh, it's like the third step or whatever, is uh, if they're unrepentant, go and tell it to the church. So Jesus only uses the word church twice, and it doesn't seem that he's setting up small congregations everywhere. And I don't, it's, it's actually very hard for me to see, um, although it just takes a little bit more searching and understanding, I think. Um, it doesn't look like, at first glance, reading through the Gospels, that Jesus was like actually setting up churches, right? But we read in Acts that um, they use the word church, as in body of Christians, 70 times. The word ecclesia is used 23 times. Um, but they also use the word ecclesia in Acts 17 when they're rioting. Uh, and you know, the, the assembly is, uh, I think that's Acts 17 or something, or 16 or 18 or whatever. Who knows? Um, but Acts uses it 17 times in context of the church. And it's very clear that Paul's mission, the apostles' mission, P uh, Peter's mission was going, setting up elders, and making congregations of people wherever they went. 
that doesn't seem to be Jesus's mission in reading the Gospels. So where did where where did the apostles, where did Paul and Peter primarily get the idea of setting up churches and congregations of people? Synagogue. Synagogue? Uh, like, explain it a little further, if you want to. Well, the people were already there, and a lot of them were God fears, and that's where they assembled, and that's where they went to. I just think maybe that was a, a help to this. Yeah, if you look at the early church, uh, they pretty much, we'll get to this you know, towards the bottom of the page, but they pretty much mimicked the same liturgy and doing what the church or what the synagogue system did, as far as like reading scripture, prayer, uh, you know, praise and worship, you know, different sacraments and stuff like that. Um, but essentially, yeah, like there's a huge correlation between the early church and the synagogue. Um, and I think when we, if we draw this out a little bit more, um, You know, we see that uh, Jesus always goes in the city to the synagogue, right? That's why Peter and Paul always go to the synagogue first, right? Jesus was um, after the lost sheep of Israel, right? Those weren't always Israelites, <laughs> right? So uh, infer from that what you may. Um, but even then, like, Jesus wasn't, like doing anything separate from the synagogue, right? He didn't like draw people away from the synagogue. He went there, he taught, he preached, uh, he made, you know, uh, he condemned synagogue leaders and stuff, but he never set up like another institution, right? Why, why is that? From the bottom up, not the top down. What do you mean? Explain that a little bit. So, like, a lot of people, when they think of, like, revolution. Yeah, so one of the reasons why he doesn't set up multiple churches is because he's the king, he's there, yeah. right? That's the first, probably, primary thing is uh, the church is where he is. <laughs> he's seated in his kingdom. The kingdom, I should say, the kingdom of God is where he is. He is the present reigning king, right? So to be in his kingdom would have, uh, you know, meant to follow him or obey him, right? Like the gathering demoniac didn't get the privilege to follow Jesus where he went, but he sent the gathering demoniac ahead of him to the Decapolis, right? So there's an example of uh, the expansion of the kingdom. And God's covenants are continuous. The synagogues of what I think God's plan was, and we see this in the New Testament, or in the book of Acts and uh, throughout the epistles, is that the synagogues were going to assimilate, uh, or at least bring a remnant out of the synagogues, to build uh, other synagogues called the church. Right? So his plan, what it seems like, um, is that the synagogues were going to assimilate into the kingdom if we go back to the definition of those who would uh, willingly submit to the king of his rule and authority and everything, right? The synagogues would become the church. And although uh, I don't think there's any examples I can think of where whole synagogues got converted and they used that same physical synagogue building to be a church, but there's clearly synagogue leaders who follow Jesus. There's, 
uh, people in the Pharisee party and different uh, Jewish leaders of the day who join the church, who uh, continue covenant with God and continue to produce fruits in his kingdom, right? So, um, uh, yeah, Luke 14, 6 and Acts 17, 1 and 2 just kind of make that case that Jesus, it says it was regularly Jesus' ministry to go to the synagogues and it was regularly Paul's ministry to go to the synagogues. Um, but I guess that begs the question, if we go a little bit deeper, where did the synagogues come from? Does anybody know a little bit about how the synagogues, synagogues got established or the background? Well, there's like, you know, in, uh, yeah, that's, that's actually a um, um, big part of it. Uh, but, you know, most of the time when we read scripture, we think of, you know, there's the temple, right, which was the place where uh, the tabernacle was, um, you know, God's presence was, dwell, was supposed to dwell or symbolic of God's presence dwell. All Jews were supposed to travel there uh, for the high holidays um, three times a year to offer sacrifices. Yeah, so the temple has three different places, and a tabernacle uh, is the uh, in the inner place of the temple. So the tabernacle is in the temple, just like uh, I'm in this room, but I'm sitting in this chair. They're two separate things, but they're located at the same spot. Um, right. I, I we should say the tabernacle was a movable temple, but it held you know focused on the Ark of the Covenant which was in, then in the middle uh, of the temple. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so by the first century, we know that the synagogues were already established, right? Because Jesus goes to them, uh, Paul goes to them, like that's clear. <laughs> but kind of like, where the heck do they come from? Because there's no synagogues in the Old Testament. And Bradbury brought out a really great point um, that there's foreshadowings uh, beginning with Moses as far as, or at least like, in the, maybe not foreshadowings, but indications that there could have been the beginnings of a synagogue system. Uh, one of those being the Tent of Meeting, where sometimes the Tent of Meeting is called the Tabernacle, uh, or the Tabernacle is referred to as the Tent of Meeting, and sometimes that's very clearly another place outside the camp <laughs> where Joshua was, um, so that part of the Old Testament was like really confusing to me because I'm like, why do you have to use the same term for two different places? Uh, I guess it's to get the point across that you can meet with God at the tabernacle or you can meet at the God, not at the tabernacle or something. Uh, I was just thinking a little bit before that, like when you were talking about like Jesus and Peter and Paul, like going out to like where the God bearers were first and then like, you know, they were going to kind of expand from there. I was thinking like, God talked to the Israel, to the descendants of Israel himself first, and then he was going to use that to kind of spread out to the Gentiles. I was thinking maybe that's kind of like a foreshadowing as well. Yeah, totally. It's totally a foreshadowing of the gospel going out to all nations. Um, even, you know, what we'll look at is the intertestament or a deuterocanonical uh, period, uh, which one's a Protestant term, which is uh, intertestamental, which means between the testaments, and the other one... Uh, Deuterocanonical is a 
Catholic term for the same thing, only the Catholics believe that that's the second canon, the time period between Malachi and Matthew. And those books are written that there's the uh, Apocrypha, which the Catholics would say that that's canon, uh, and Protestants would say that that's not. Um, but Catholics wouldn't say it's canon until like the eighth century anyways, so. But that's besides the point. Um, so there's no mention of synagogues in the Old Testament. There's things that are beginnings of what could be a synagogue system, like the tent of meeting in as far back as Moses, right? And that's like back in the wilderness, um, in the desert for 40 years or whatever, uh, that they would regularly come to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, to meet and offer sacrifices and praise and um, receive judgments and hear from God. But then also there's the tent of meeting that's not the tabernacle, uh, that it says that they go and meet and um, do various things with, right? So, um, kind of tracking back from you know the first century A.D., going backwards, we know that it's very, the system is super established. They have order, they have, um, by 70 AD, there's like 480 uh, synagogues just in Jerusalem and over 1,000 synagogues throughout the world or mostly the Roman Empire. By the time the temple's destroyed in 70 AD, but uh, in my research that I've done, um, most Jewish leaders agree that the synagogues were uh, established during the first exile and second temple period. So who knows when that is? When's the first exile? Not year, but like, give me a book of the Bible, a reference. If you want to name the year, go for it. End of Second Chronicles? Yeah. The end of Second Chronicles, Second uh, Kings. Um, you know, right before Ezra and Nehemiah time period, right? Where uh, this is after, um, you know, Saul's been king, then, then David and Solomon, and, and you, go through, son, yeah. you go through all the, the kings, and, you know, they're setting up, um, you know, Baal and Ashtoreths and other forms of worship in every city, right? So there's an allusion to... Like even in, some would think, you know, at least in the reforms of King Josiah, when he read the law to all the people uh, that and destroyed the temples um, of the pagan gods, that they use those, this is just a theory, this isn't like, you can't find this anywhere in the Bible, uh, but it's a, it's a major thought in um, Jewish writings, that in Josiah's reforms, that they turned those into synagogue-like places of worship, right? But this might open it up even a little bit more wherever it's located. Uh, oh, well, well, let's get into this. Sorry, that's part of... Um, so that's kind of the main idea. We don't know exactly when the synagogue... Just to get the point across, we don't know exactly when the synagogue system was set up. There's... Allusions to it as far as back as as Moses, uh, but I think the kind of bottom line is, uh, you know, before the New Testament, if you loved God, you would regularly meet together. Anyways, you were already grouped together 
as God's chosen people, so you would uh, meet and assemble and worship and have community with the rest of God's people, right? Does that make sense? Do you have a question, Deanna? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. Cain and Abel met together to offer sacrifices. Um, yeah, so especially the big idea is why most Jewish scholars would agree that at least by the uh, first exile uh, and by the second temple, you know, second temple time period, that uh, because there was no temple to worship, worship at, there was no temple to meet at and offer sacrifices, you couldn't offer the high holiday sacrifices three times a year at the temple because it didn't exist. It wasn't around. Uh, so what do you do if you love God? Uh, you would probably meet together with other other uh, Jews and God-fearers and you'd worship in the means that you did before, right? You would read the Word. You'd read the Torah. You would sing psalms and praise. You would, uh, God would inevitably raise up, you know, teachers or someone who had insights and, uh, you know, just like he does everywhere else throughout all of time, throughout all of history. If you get like five Christians together, one of them knows something different than the other one and wants to tell them about it. <laughs> right? Uh, so uh, it's not unlikely, although it's not like didactic, uh, that the whole. Uh, idea and formation of the synagogue started, you know, with Moses, or at least by the exile, right? So that begs the question, um, you know, by the first century we have established patterns. We know that through history and writings, um, and we're going to do. We're going to go through like, what did they do in the synagogue? Like, how did that come about, and where did they learn that? Because what we want to look at is just what does the institution do? What is the institutional church doing? And how does that show the kingdom, right? So uh, all of this relates to where we started, that the kingdom of God is visible in the church. Uh, so let's try to keep that in mind. So where are we at? Probably uh, Deanna, um, under what did they do in the synagogue? Read number one, and then we'll go through those uh, verses. If uh, Christine, you want to grab Luke 4, 16 through 22. Um, and Bethany, can you, uh, read Acts 13, 13 through 16? Yeah, so this was, these are things that were part of every synagogue that we know of because of Jewish writings, uh, in the first century or earlier. Okay. So how do we know that? Let's go to Luke 4. So what happened? He went to the synagogue, Nazareth. Uh, they gave him a reading from the prophets, uh, from Isaiah, uh, and he explained, this is me. That was his explanation. I don't think they understood what he was saying. Uh, I think they kind of did uh, at the beginning because they, they marveled at him, but as soon as he went a little bit deeper, I think they, they got a little mad and tried to kill him. Then I think when they under when they actually understood a little bit deeper what he was saying, that's when they tried to kill him. 
so what about Acts uh, 13, 13 through 16? Yeah, and he, then he goes on to explain. Uh, we don't need to read through his explanation. All we're trying to get the point across is it said, after the reading from the law and the prophets, because uh, that was a regular thing in every synagogue. Uh, we see that in Scripture, but if um, we'll go through, uh, if you actually look at I kind of put this under number four as well, because a lot of these blend together. Uh, the Mishnah was a Jewish book written about what you would do in the synagogue. That was... Like, uh, there's a bunch of, like, Puritan and different church, you know, history books about, like, you know, the Book of Common Prayer uh, is a book that the church has used throughout history of, like, here's some prayers you can recite and stuff like that. But the Mishnah was an instruction to the synagogues about what their liturgy and what their operation is going to look like. Um, it doesn't, which gave a little bit of liability or a little bit of a, you know, uh, you know, decision making to each synagogue. It didn't say you have to do this and this and this and this and this and this. And if you do this, you're kicked out. It said, you know, um, you're going to do this, this, and this, and you're going to read from the Torah, and then you're going to read, you know, from the prophets. But you don't have to read this section. You can choose, right? So it gave a little bit of a ways to differ. But there was always a public reading of scripture, uh, always from the Torah in the beginning, uh, which we'll kind of look at the liturgy is number four, but we'll talk about that in a minute. All right, uh, Amber. So on number, why don't we, uh, that uh, Theodotus quote is on the back. I'll have you read that. And then uh, Sam Chimpoon, can you read Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8? And every synagogue included uh, teaching the commandments, not just reading the Torah or the prophets, but teaching Within it. it was a place where uh, if you wanted to learn more um, and you wanted to uh, get taught one-on-one, you can come there. Remind me, we'll talk about bar mitzvah and what that is. So, Amber, would you read that Theodotus quote on the back? This was uh, an inscription. Um, I can't remember when it was discovered by archaeologists, but it was presumably a third-century synagogue in Jerusalem. Um, so go ahead. Yeah, so this was a plaque inscribed in Greek uh, on a Jewish synagogue of why the synagogue is there, uh, you know, alluding to why every synagogue is there for the reading of the Torah, reading of the law, and teaching the commandments. So this is an interesting one. I actually uh, was at a um, event downtown where they read, I forget what it was called, but they, you were there, maybe you can remember, um, where they read the book of Nehemiah uh, out loud and prayed and worshipped downtown on Courthouse Square. And it was as I was listening to Nehemiah as they read it, like this passage actually popped out to me, and I was like, oh, holy crap, like this is super important. <laughs> I was like, oh, how did I miss this before? Uh, so... Who wants to give some context behind Nehemiah? What is Nehemiah and Ezra? What are they doing? They rebuild the second temple. Rebuilding the second temple, right? After, uh, you know, if you look at chronologically, Second Chronicles, Second Kings ends. The next book in line uh, is Ezra and Nehemiah, Mm -hmm. Um, and they're 
commissioned to go and rebuild the temple, right? So as they're rebuilding, to give some context, this is what uh, Nehemiah is saying they're going to do, or what they are doing. Yeah, so you were reading from the ESV, I'm thinking, because it said clearly. Uh, Somebody read verse 8 in the NASB, King James, and New King James. Like, when I heard this, I was like, holy crap. Like, this was a biblical pattern from the times of at least uh, Nehemiah, where it says they read the book of the law, and they read the commandments. And if you notice, it says he stood on a wooden box and did this. What does that sound like? Preaching, it's a pulpit, right? Uh, and then, for, to all those who could understand, and then it says they explained it to everyone who didn't and taught them. And I think the ESV is the least clear about it because it uses the word clear. Uh, so who's got the NASB, King James, New King James? New King James, right here. Hit it, verse 8. All right, so they read distinctly from the book, in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And helped them to understand it, right? So that was New King James. All right, Nasby, you got it? They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Yeah, translating it so they can understand it. Like, what use is uh, the law or the Bible or any scripture if you don't understand it? It's worthless. <laughs> it's worthless. What's that say? It says they read from the book of God's law, explaining it. Yeah. So who knows what a bar mitzvah is or what happens in a bar mitzvah? So, yeah, so what do they do? What's the, this is a Jewish rite of passage for boys coming, boys to men. <laughs> that was a pun. And what do they do? <laughs> they party, but before that. <laughs> right? um, not as far as I know, but they read from the Torah. They have a select reading from the Torah in Hebrew. Bar Mitzvah. Who's, uh, who's Simon Bar Jonah? Son of John. So Bar Mitzvah is a son of, not the command, I think it's son of the commandment. Someone can check me. Yeah, son of the commandment. They've been taught. They understand. They know it. They can read it. They can write it. That was like a regular thing in Jewish culture. By the time you're 13, that you know and understand, um, because you would read from the Torah, and then you would explain it. Just like Jesus does in Luke 3 or something, uh, when he's 12. They do something similar to that in the Roman Catholic Church as well. I don't remember what it's called. Uh, There's confirmation. Yeah, they do very similar. Um, So this was like a regular thing in the synagogue. Not just that they would read it and pronounce it, but that they would teach it. There was discipleship, uh, one-on-one presumably. Um, I don't know how else you could teach somebody. Uh, so that they can understand it, you know, if they have questions. But there's at least, you know, groups or one-on-one discipleship to understand the commandments back in... Someone could look up when the time of Nehemiah was. I think it was like 580 or something. I don't really know. 
I don't know off the top of my head. Um, so let's try to at least push through this. Though so prayer, uh, Morgan, you, can you get Acts three one, uh, Josiah, Luke one ten. Yeah, because you're you're culpable now because you know the law, you know God's law, you know it and understand it, and you can recite from it, and you're no longer like under my responsibility anymore. I've released you to become a man, to go out like you said, own a business, and go out be fruitful and multiply, and get married and take on the kingdom of God to wherever He leads you. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, like, do you see how, like, if the early church was taking this model, how the institution is viewed way higher than what we have now today in Western evangelicalism, right? Do you guys see, like, the big difference of just looking at the institution of the responsibilities and what, that, what the church as a building of people assembled together is supposed to be doing? Yeah. For sure. So let's go on to prayer and kind of try to wrap this up. When I did look up when Nehemiah was, it was in 445 BC. 445 BC. So that's uh, almost a thousand years before Christ. Cool. All right. Acts 31 ESV. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Yeah, so most, uh, I had never actually thought about this until today, that uh, I had always just read it and assumed that when Peter went up at the hour of prayer, he was going to the temple in Jerusalem, by the way, uh, that that was like a Christian thing, that the Christians were gathering for an hour of prayer. But uh, although that could be the case, it's not explicit, what I think is more likely is that there at the temple and in the synagogues, they had hours of prayer. They had specific times that people would meet together and pray. They did it on their Sabbath day worship as part of their liturgy, but also throughout the week, people would meet for prayer uh, in the synagogues and in the temple. So it's very likely that when it says that Peter and John went up at the hour of prayer, that wasn't because that's when the Christians decided to meet. Uh, that's when the Jews, when the when the system uh, when the local temple or synagogue was deciding to meet at the hour of prayer. So, all right, Josiah, what's the next one? Luke one ten. Luke one ten ESV. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Yeah, at the hour of incense, this was uh, at the Jewish temple when John the Baptist's dad is ministering in the temple, it says the whole multitude or the whole of Israel is outside praying. So do you think that they were all just like led by the Lord to come and pray at that time? (laughs) Anything is possible, I guess, but probably not likely that they were organized. There was an institution that said, hey, we're going to meet at this hour. It's the hour of incense and we're going to pray. And uh, ironically enough, uh, that's when the Lord moved uh, that's when an anointing really came on and an angel visited uh, Zechariah. Zechariah, you know, John the Baptist's dad, and uh, proclaimed the coming Christ, right? But the institution put together this prayer meeting, right? 
All right, four, sacraments and liturgy. Um, so everybody know what I mean by uh, sacraments and liturgy? I'll just, who wants to explain that real quick? Somebody else. Talk. What's a sacrament? A sacred symbol, right? Uh, in Protestant churches, that would be water, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. In Catholic, there's like, you know, seven. There's marriage, confession, and I don't know any of the other ones off the top of my head. But those are what are called sacred ordinances or sacred practices within the church, right? Uh, liturgy is just how every church has a liturgy. Every church has an order to worship. Uh, we're going to start with three worship songs, and then we're going to have a reading from the Word, and then we're going to teach... Uh, we're going to have a sermon, and then we're going to end with one more song, and then we're going to tell people to get out of here. <laughs> like, that's liturgy. No matter whether you're, it's like, has the Lord's Supper or anything, liturgy is just the form of worship. So, the Mishnah describes five things that every, these are the things that every synagogue has to do. Uh, I don't remember if these are in order or just, um, some of them are in order. Yeah, this is, this is in order. Of the worship, every synagogue started with a reading from Deuteronomy six and Numbers fifteen, um, then a written prayer, the priestly blessing from Aaron. Uh, then they would read from portions of the Torah and Prophets, which are subject to each synagogue, and then they would end with uh, forms of worship, which might be singing psalms and an eschatological prayer, which means that like the Lord is coming, He is mighty and great, and He's going to rule the whole earth. That's how every synagogue operated. And we know that uh, at least from the first century when the system uh, was primed and ready by God's sovereignty for uh, Christ to establish the church and follow the model uh, of the synagogue, those were the five things that were included. And those are the five things the early church mimicked. Um, a reading from Deuteronomy 6 and Numbers 15 uh, I'd have to look exactly what those were and saying that's you know about teaching the next generation and um, stuff like that. Prayer, there was a written prayer. The uh, Aaronic priestly blessing was read to the people. Then they would read selected portions of the Torah and the prophets, right, of the sections of scripture. Uh, then they would end with uh, worship, whether that's singing a psalm or something. It's not necessarily always singing, uh, and an eschatological prayer of the Lord's victory and, and stuff. So every synagogue had those five elements in that order. And the church, early church, definitely adapted that, <laughs> right? Um, with the addition of sacraments like, you know, the Lord's Supper and uh, stuff which we'll read here in a second. Um, and I put worship in there. I don't know why I put that separately, but I did. Um, so 1 Corinthians 14, 26. I'll just read that real quick as just an allusion to how the early church adapted uh, worship. Um, if you know anything about like 
First Corinthians 14 you know, is all about like orderly worship and the when the congregation gathers together. It's not about like worshiping in your house. It's about orderly worship when you're gathered together. Um, so First Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together? There you go. <laughs> uh, you have to be together to come together. Uh, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Right, so that word for him is psalm. So that's, you know, each one has a song, a, a song of praise of something, right? So there's definitely worship in the early church and in the synagogue. Uh, who can quote Acts 2.42? Anybody? They were devoted to the fellowship. And the breaking bread, going from house to house, giving it to each other as what they needed. I was hoping somebody could <laughs> memorize it because I don't have it memorized. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody look it up real quick. We'll just go in order. Okay. And uh, they devoted themselves. This is ESV. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Apostles' teaching. And the fellowship. The fellowship. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. Breaking of bread and prayers. Right? So this was, uh, you know, as the early church, after the day of Pentecost, there's uh, three or 5,000 by this time, uh, 3,000 at least, Um and this is what they're doing. This is what they're devoted to. This is the beginning of them adopting the synagogue model that God sovereignly has put into place for them to take over, for them in the new covenant to enact and be the institution, to be the church that manifests the kingdom of God, right? Mm -hmm. That becomes visible. It's all about being visible, right? So, uh, flipping over to the back, um, kind of already talked about uh, where do you find Christians uh, so to kind of like wrap up with this statement uh, and we'll just end here is uh, so when we think about like the church is not the kingdom and the kingdom is not the church but the church is the primary agent by which the kingdom of God is exported and advanced and God doesn't have any Second uh, options. The church, the institution, is supposed to uh, export the word and move in the power of the spirit to advance the kingdom. Right? You kind of, like, just think of the institution of what it's supposed to be and look like and what we've discussed and doing that by the word and through the spirit. Going out and assimilating every other nation every other kingdom to the kingdom of God in every way, in family structures, in education, how the world, how everyone else deals in education, uh, in business and money, in, you know, social morals and media and even to civil government, right? That is the church's calling. That is how God is exporting the kingdom of God is through the visible church. So hopefully that takes our mind off of like a pietistic structure of belief and it's just theoretical and out there, but how these things will actually be manifested. And you can like think on your own time about like how uh, the church is gonna change the system of the economy. You can think about that on your own time. <laughs> so who wants to pray and and we'll end there.